Romans chapter 1, verses 18 through 21. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Heavenly Father, Lord, we look to you this morning and we pray, Father, that you would be pleased to give us your grace, that, Father, you would instruct us, you would teach us, you would guide us, you would lead us, and, Father, that you would impress your truth upon our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen and amen. Think all of us have had the experience of someone coming to us and saying, you know, I've got good news and I've got bad news. <laughs> what do you want to have first? Uh, I think we've all had that experience. And I, I'm, for one, I insist on having the bad news first. I want the bad news. Give me the bad news and let's get that, uh, let's get that over with. Well, in a similar fashion, when the gospel is truly preached, there is both good news and there is bad news. And in many ways, we don't really have a choice about what comes first. The, the bad news really should come first because it's really the bad news that makes the good news so good, is it not? And in fact, the good news of the gospel doesn't even really make sense uh, without the bad news uh, of the gospel. It falls flat without it. Now, in a previous message uh, last week, uh, gleaning from verses, uh, well, it would be, yeah, it was last week, gleaning from verses 15 and 16, we found the Apostle Paul. He's eager and he's unashamed to preach the gospel, isn't he? He's, he's eager and he's unashamed to preach the good news of Christ. The, the old, old story, as some of our hymns put it. Uh, I like to sing the old, old story, or I like to tell the old, old story. Uh, but you're going to notice here, I think you can already notice if you're familiar with uh, chapter 1 of Romans, uh, Paul begins with, with bad news, doesn't he? Uh, he begins with what we call uh, the bad news. Now, undoubtedly, one of the reasons for the radical decline of Christianity in the West, and particularly in the United States, has been the insistence of skipping over the bad news and rushing headlong into the good news. And there are various reasons for why this has been happening. I'll, I will share two popular ones with you. And first, we know that the doctrines of sin, the doctrine of wrath, the doctrines of judgment, they're not the most popular doctrines, are they? You know, let's all gather around and let's study about the final judgment. You know, we'll get on about that. That's not going to draw a big crowd in our culture, is it? 
And we say to ourselves, okay, um, I better not get into all this stuff because if I get into all this stuff, these guys, everybody's going to be out of here. I'm just going to clear the place. So I think we better soften things up a little bit. And sometimes there's truth to this, isn't it? You know, I, you've, some of you have heard, I don't think I've said this in a while, but some of you have heard me say this, that the, the gospel is a sift. You know what I mean by a sift? You know, you, 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 know you, you put sand over a screen and you shake it and all the rocks and stuff in it. We used to have to do that once in a while. Uh, if you, if you want to lay brick or sell block or something with sand that's laid around for a while, you have to, you have to screen it first, you know, because if there's rocks and stuff in it, if there's gravel in it, well, then you, you're not going to be able to level the bricks up. You can't have that stuff. You put the sand in and you, you shake the screen and the, the, the finer particles fall through and the rocks are on top. But the gospel is like that. It's a sift. And uh, when you preach the gospel, indeed, there are some who, who say, you know, I'm out of here. Um, and that's the way it's always going to be. That happened to Jesus and it's happened to it happened to Paul and it's happened to everyone else ever since. And of course, there's a time for every doctrine. I don't want to give the impression that we should run out of here uh, this morning and say, OK, it's going to be all about the bad news everywhere I go. It's going to be about the bad news. There's a time for every doctrine. Sometimes people already have the bad news. They're already despondent. They've already got the bad news and it's time to go in with the good news. Uh, wisdom and discernment is required here. And I might add it's a wisdom and discernment that we don't inherently have. I don't have it. You don't have it. None of us have it. And that is good reason for us to be constantly on our knees, isn't it? We really must be constantly in prayer over this. But all of this having been said, we're eventually going to have to get on with the bad news here sometime or the good news of the gospel is not going to make any sense. Let me put it this way. Who needs a savior if everything is okay? If everything is all right, what do we need saved from? And many people might even ask that question. If you talk to them about a Savior, they'd be, they, they might say, save from what? And I think the message, I think this morning's message is going to be especially suited for the, the one who has everything going right for him, you know. You know, it's, uh, you know, the, the, there's, you know, there's a three-stall garage, a three-stall brick garage appended to a brick house, and there's a great career that's on fire, and there's, there's kids, and they're all doing great in school, and they're going great in sports, and there's lots of money coming in, and, you know, we've got a Corvette and an SUV in there and a Beamer in the other stall, and just everything is going great. What do I, what do I need a Savior for? Well, okay. We're going to see in a few minutes that maybe everything isn't going so great after all. So that's the first reason that we that we uh, we skip the bad news. We know the doctrines are unpopular. The second reason is we're madly in love with ourselves. It doesn't give me any pleasure to say that. I thought I'd just be blunt, you know. I mean, because it's true. Uh, we're so madly in love with ourselves that we withhold the truth from others because we don't want them to think ill of us. It's always about us. You ever notice that? You know, it's in varying degrees. I don't want to say we're all equally in love with ourselves, but we're all pretty love, pretty, in, and we're all pretty in love with ourselves. And um, so, one of the reasons we don't share the bad news is we're too worried about what others are going to think of us, or we don't want to be ostracized from a certain circle or certain 
We want to be in with the circle. Listen, if you're going to get on about sharing the gospel, just accept the fact right away, you're going to be on the outside of most circles. You might still be, you might, you know, you might still be uh, appended to it in a certain way, but you're not going to be on the inside. You have to really, you know, Jesus tells us to count the costs, you know. Remember, he says, count the costs. This is one of the costs, and we have to make up our minds. And sometimes we're not willing to do that, so we, we remain silent. Well, the good news is, if we fess up to all of this, we can find forgiveness in Christ. If we repent of this, we can find forgiveness. If we seek his face, we can find forgiveness in this. Jesus will forgive us of this. And you know what might happen? You know, wow, I shouldn't say what might happen. You know what will happen as you do this? He'll give you an increased boldness. Ask me how I know that. I'm guilty as charged of all of this myself. A lot of people get really surprised when I say that. I said that a couple times while we were down in Grafton. You know, the, 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 you know this is the second time that we've been to the National Cemetery in Grafton. And both times I have been, I've been so impressed with the people there at that cemetery. You know, the first time was two years ago. We were down there, and, and my role in the service was just simply to do what we generally refer to as a graveside kind of talk, which is very brief. And uh, then the military came in, and I, I, when I took my seat, I, uh, I, I remember thinking, okay, this is going to be some kind of politically correct thing that doesn't say nothing at all. Oh, my goodness, was I wrong about that? It was an impressive ceremony that was done impressive and you know uh, Friday Friday's ceremony was basically it was a it was a funeral ceremony that took place and and um, you know there were there were no military there but the equivalent of the funeral director uh, who was there actually spoke up and he was overjoyed that the service worshipped the Lord. And what's amazing about this um, is the boldness, uh, the boldness of, of this fellow stepping in and, and saying that. In fact, what did he say at first, Tammy? I think he said something like, you know, I think I can say this to you guys. You know, when you, when you spend time with the Lord and you're in His presence, you come out of there with a certain boldness. Not an obnoxious boldness, but a certain boldness. Uh, a, certain, a, a certain authority. So, as, you know, as we look at this, as we, as, as we look at these reasons for skipping over uh, the bad news, which is easy to do, is it not? How many times have you been in those situations where Okay, I, I, I need I need to tell somebody about this bad news. I need I need to tell them, and we just kind of skip over it or we soften it up. The good news is, if we repent of this and we seek God's grace in this, He does forgive us and He does give us a, a boldness. Now, the approach I want to I want to use here uh, this morning, um, and with what I've just said running in the background, if you will, kind of like, you know, let it be like one of those background programs that's running on your phone or your computer. 
the approach that I want to use this morning is more of an inductive pr- approach. You know, a lot of times I will, I will give you like several points and then I'll go ahead and develop those points. I, I like to vary this from time to time, but I'll confess that really I would have liked to have given you some points and then developed the points, but I couldn't get it to go that way this time. I don't know why I was struggling and it just didn't happen. I thought, okay, we're just going to do this inductively, meaning we're just going to dive into the text and, and we're just going to discover things here as we go. So let's look at verse 18. Paul writes there, he says that the wrath of God is revealed from heaven. The wrath of God, you see that in verse 18. Now, if you surveyed the popular preaching and teaching that's taking place everywhere here in the West, you're probably not going to ever hear the word wrath, especially where it pertains to the wrath of God. You're probably not going to hear that. And consequently, I'm not sure that anybody really believes in it anymore. You know, do, do we believe in this any longer? Uh... You know, it's practically inconceivable, I think, to our culture that that God could be angry. And it's commonly held that we can do whatever we desire. God, you know, he's just going to go along with it. He doesn't get angry. It, what he's really concerned about is that we're happy. You know, as long as you guys are happy, you're happy. This is great, you know. And according to this, it's also commonly held today that we're we're undeserving of God's wrath. I mean... We say to ourselves, what could we possibly do to deserve anything like that? And I think that our culture probably has already turned another corner, which is even worse, where we have this entitlement attitude as we come to God. Almost like, you know, we deserve better than what we already have. We deserve, we deserve, we deserve, we deserve. You know that word deserve? That's a real buzzword in our culture, isn't it? You know, if you just listen for the word deserve, you're going to hear it all day long, 24-7. So in summary, according to popular culture, I mean, there's practically nothing we could do to be deserving of God's wrath. And quite frankly, he has no right to inflict it anyway, uh, unless, of course, we're talking about the real heinous crimes that humans commit, save terrorism and uh, uh, rape and murder and things of the like. Well, as you well know, nothing could be more unbiblical, could it? Nothing could be more unbiblical. Paul does not avoid the doctrine of wrath. He uses it once in chapter 1. He uses it three times in chapter 2. He uses it once in chapters 3, 4, and 5. He uses it twice in chapter 9, once again in chapter 12, and twice in chapter 13. And if my... uh, math is correct, he's using it a total of 12 times in his letter to the Romans. In 16 chapters, he uses this 12 times. In his exposition of the gospel, he brings up the wrath of God 12 times. So we have to ask ourselves, what business do we have avoiding it? Someone, I mean, what's... Paul aware that this tends to drive people away? Was Paul aware that this tends to turn people off? I mean, I can't I can hear the church growth guys jumping in here, you know, uh, taking a look at what Paul's about to send to the Romans, and I can hear him saying, Boy, Paul, um, what are you doing? 
chapters one, two, and three, really? Do you want anybody to read this thing? I mean, if you want anybody to read this thing, you better soft pedal some of this stuff because nobody's going to read this. Nobody's going to embrace this. Is Paul unaware of that? Is Paul unaware that this turns people away? Is he unaware that it drives people away? Is he unaware that it turns people off? Of course not. Paul knows that better than anyone in this room. How can I say that? Well, um, Acts chapter 14. What happens to Paul in Acts chapter 14? He preaches the gospel. And Acts 14 verse 19 tells us the Jews came from Antioch and Iconium and having persuaded the crowds, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city supposing that he was dead. This happens to Stephen in Acts chapter 7, doesn't it? What is Stephen doing, by the way, when, when, they, when they stone him? He's laying in the bad news, isn't he? Sometimes this afternoon, read Acts chapter 7, you'll see Stephen has given them the bad news in preparation for the good news. He doesn't really get to get into the good news much because the bad news gets him killed, doesn't it? So were these folks aware Of course they were aware. So we ask ourselves, well then, why would they run the risk? Why would they submit themselves to such danger? And the answer is because souls depend upon it. The answer is because the salvation of their listeners depend upon it. You see, that's something for us to keep in mind when we're at the water cooler at work. You know, the, the salvation of the person you're talking to d- depends on them hearing the bad news somewhere from somebody, sometime. And, and how many believers do they have in their lives? How many people do they have around that's going to tell them this stuff? Was Paul unaware that this drives people away? Absolutely. He was. He knew it better than we did, yet he uses wrath 12 times. He brings it up 12 times in Romans because it's an important part of the gospel. Now, before we move on any further, I want to I make sure that we're on the same page here. What exactly is God's wrath? I don't want to assume that we know what that is. I think we all know what that is. But let me just take a couple of minutes and, and say and define it. I mean, I think the first thing I could start by saying is that the wrath of God is His deep displeasure over sin. His deep displeasure over over sin. One Greek lexicon defines God wrath, God's wrath as, quote, the divine reaction against evil, bringing judgment and punishment both historically and in the future, end of quote. I'll read that to you one more time. God's wrath is, quote, the divine reaction against evil, bringing judgment and punishment both historically and in the future, end of quote. I think this is a really good definition, but it has a deficiency in it. The, the deficiency in it that, that I see is you'll, you'll, you'll notice that it refers to judgment in the past, judgment in the future. Uh, it, it, it's, it's, not, it's leaving out judgment in the present. And as we study Romans, we'll, we'll, we're going to see a little bit of that this week, but we're going to see it more next week. That judgment indeed is a present reality. Uh, we can already glean it from, from verse 18. The Apostle Paul says the wrath of God is revealed from heaven. 
It's being revealed currently. It's going on at the moment. There's a present aspect to it. So I think this definition is, is deficient in that area. Uh, another lexicon adds that God's wrath is, quote, divine punishment based on God's angry judgment against someone, end of quote. Uh, quote, divine punishment based on God's angry judgment against someone, end of quote. So we see here it's not simply God's judgment, but it's God's angry judgment. And adding to the severity of this, if you'll look back with me again to verse 18, Paul adds this prepositional phrase from heaven. Notice he says the wrath of God is revealed from where? From heaven. This has taken place from the throne room of heaven. It's taken place from his very throne, if you will. He continues, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. So this quickly shatters any notion that God doesn't care about how we live or what we think or what we do or uh, it, 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 it shatters any idea of that notion. It quickly shatters any idea that all God cares about is that we're happy. Uh, but, it, you know, when I put things this way, uh, it, it, that's kind of a crass way of putting it. I, you know, I think it's amazing how many subtle ways we have this in our heads, actually. Uh, usually it's much more subtle. I mean, every time... Every time we're about to do wrongdoing or we've done wrongdoing, you ever notice we have this justification mechanism that kind of jumps in and says, yeah, I know this wasn't right. I shouldn't do this, but there's blah, 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 blah. Um, There's this justification. We're attempting to soft pedal. Um, But we should know that true happiness is never found in ungodliness and unrighteousness, is it? I mean, it's never found on those paths. And if you look again with me to verse 18, the words ungodliness and unrighteousness, you know, Paul is not talking about two things here. He's talking about one thing. He, we see that from verse 18 because the last part of it reads, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Do you see that phrase there? That's an important phrase in getting this who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. The evil that Paul's talking about here is the act of suppressing the truth. This ungodliness and unrighteousness, is, 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 they're in apposition. There's two things talking about the same thing. Uh, what is that same? What is that thing? It's this idea of suppressing the truth. Let me read the whole verse. Verse 18, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness, what? They suppress the truth. The wrath of God is being revealed for the suppression of the truth. That's how I think we should take this. So that leads to the next question. What exactly is this suppression of the truth? Verses 19 and 20 explain. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. Verse 20, for his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. Okay, what Paul is saying is this. He's, he's saying, you know, look around at the world and all that is in it. You know, look around at everything you can see. You know, you can look out at the window and, and uh, don't do too much of that, at least until we're done with the service here. But briefly, you can look around and you can see everything that's been made. 
And we can look at the stars and the universe, the galaxies. We can, we can think of the protein cell. We can think of the human conscious. We can think of the ecosystem. We can think of all of these things. And we, we can know that they didn't get here by accident. They didn't just poof out of nothing. They didn't arrive by mere chance. And, and that really takes us right in the heart of a pretty big debate that's going on in and the educational system has been going on for a long time, isn't it? The, the debate over what we call intelligent design. Oh, intelligent design. I mean, the question is, was the universe made by the hands of a creator or is there a so-called scientific explanation? And I say so-called scientific explanation. I don't want to give anyone in the, the impression here this morning that I'm an anti-science guy. I mean, I think most of you know that. I made my living for many years in the field of electronics. That's science. Uh, and I've always found it very fascinating. And I like to use medical in illustrations because I find them to be so fascinating, too. I'm not an anti-science guy at all. Um, but um, the, the controversy really, it goes like this. Was the universe made by the hands of a creator or is there a scientific explanation? Uh, well, um, I, you know, I can remember a couple of years ago, this is, well, this has been more, it's probably been 10 years ago. I can remember talking with some folks about, really about this, this very debate. And the, these two fellas were not, they weren't really skeptics. They weren't, they weren't obnoxious. They weren't trying to play chess with me. These two fellows were just trying to figure out, is there a God? I mean, does God exist? They really, they really were wrestling with that. And I remember we were having this talk. It was a very meaningful talk. We were walking in a, an area where there was a creek, and we were kind of walking along this path, and there were a lot of trees around. And uh, at one point, I saw a tree with a really low limb, and I was wearing a wristwatch. And I took my wristwatch off, and, and have I ever told you this story? I took my wristwatch off and I laid it in the limb of one of the trees. And I said to the, those fellows, I said, if you happen to be walking through the woods here and you happen to come to this tree and, and you, you discovered this watch in the limb of this tree, what would you conclude from that? And they were looking at me like kind of confused as to what my point could possibly be. But I continued to press them. I said, what would you conclude by that? And they, they said, one of them said, well, somebody forgot their watch. And another one said, well, they took their watch off and left it in the tree. And, and I asked them, well, why would you come to such a conclusion as that? And they said, because the watch didn't get there by itself. Well, I, I responded by saying, well, wait a second. I mean, with all the wheels and springs and quartz and all that stuff that's everywhere in the world, I mean, given it enough time, couldn't it have all just kind of found its way inside that little case and start ticking and keeping time perfectly? And then I added that the protein cell, I mean, this wristwatch is a crude instrument in comparison to the protein cell. 
It's a crude instrument in comparison to a human conscience. Could all these get here by themselves? The problem with the intelligent design debate has everything to do with five words, and these five words are found at the end of verse 20. Look at the very end of verse 20. You see these five words? So they are without excuse. It has nothing to do with science. If you get in a debate with somebody about this, don't worry about science because the debate has nothing to do with science. They'll take you off into all kinds of places and try to take you in all these places about science and prove what they know about science. This debate has nothing to do with science. It has everything to do with so they are without excuse. This is not a scientific issue at all. It's a moral issue. And everyone knows, I mean, we all know that this universe didn't get here by itself. Just like we know a watch can't be found on a limb of a tree by itself. But we push back at this knowledge. We push hard against this knowledge. And that's what Paul is saying. He puts it this way. We suppress the truth. We suppress the truth. The Greek word here, which is translated suppress, it means to hold back, to restrain. Uh, We could think of it as this pushing back. You know, we see it coming. We don't like it. We push back at it. We can't stand it. We don't want it. We push back at it. Don't intrude. And this is a moral issue because it's evil. It's, it's evil, and it leads us to do evil things. Look at verse 21. Paul says, for although they knew God. Uh, who They who? Who is the they? It's everyone who's pushing back on this truth. Everyone who is suppressing the truth. And what does Paul mean by they knew God? I mean, a lot of times when we think about knowing God, we think about uh, saving faith, you know. Uh, a person comes to saving faith, now they know Jesus. They have a relationship, a, a good positive relationship with Jesus. They know Him. Uh, that can't be what Paul means here because they're suppressing the truth. They're not embracing it. But see, there's a few other, there's a couple other ways that the New Testament talks about uh, knowing God. Uh, one of those ways, which we're going to see when we get to chapter 2, is that God has instinctively put knowledge of Himself in each one of our hearts. We're going to see that when we get to chapter 2. He's instinctively done this. Instinctively we know that there is a God. That's why in World War I they said there's no atheists in foxholes. Instinctively we, we all know it. And I've had, you know, I've had experience with friends who, who profess to be atheists and when tragedy comes into their life they welcome my prayers. Why? Would you welcome my prayer? If there's no God... We all know there is a God. There's another way that the New Testament speaks about us knowing God, and it's knowledge that we get from looking around at the work of His hands. Psalm 19, which we read earlier, puts it this way. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims His handiwork. I like to say to the kids, you know, when they're a certain age, I've said this to all of our grandkids, look up there, what do you see? I see clouds. Wow! How do they how do they stay up there? I don't know. What's keeping them from falling down? I don't know. Well, God's keeping them up there. I mean, God keeps them up there. You know? Why are they up there? Well, there's a sun shining on us and there's moisture. The sun shines on the moisture and the moisture rises. You see the science. 
He uses the science, you know, to keep the clouds up there. God's keeping them up there. We all know as we look around. Day to day pours out speech, the psalmist continues, and night to night reveals knowledge. And this knowledge is what Paul has in mind in here. We all know God in this sense because the universe everywhere displays it, doesn't it? A human conscious cannot create itself any more than a wristwatch can create itself and climb up into the limb of a tree. Just can't do it. Can't do it. Now, if intelligent design is over is about a moral issue, what is the moral issue? Look back with me again to verse 21. Paul says, For although they knew God, they did not what? They did not honor Him or give thanks to Him. So the issue here over this controversy is, okay, if we've been made by God, if we owe our existence to God, if we owe our lives to God, okay, then we are without excuse for not having honored Him as God or given thanks to Him as God. See, it's a moral issue. It's a moral issue. Furthermore, we're guilty of what I'll call a cosmic cover-up. A cosmic cover-up. Because we're producing all of these theories, ridiculous theories, to try to explain away that God exists. We attempt to convince ourselves by saying that these theories have true science behind them. Let's evaluate that for a minute. I mean, reason with me. Just just reason with me for a moment. What is unscientific? What is unscientific about saying all these things have been created by God? What is unscientific about that? What is unscientific about saying that God created science? I mean, He must have created science if He created all things. So He creates science, right? He created all the laws that science obeys. What is unscientific about that? What is unscientific about saying that all science is his science? What is unscientific about saying all science answers to him? And for that matter, if all science answers to God, then what is so unscientific about God suspending those laws for a moment and performing a miracle? They answer to him anyway. You know? He, God didn't want us to just float off into outer space somewhere, so he creates, he creates gravity. Otherwise, we'd all be floating around. That'd be cool for a little while, but I don't think we would like it all day long. There's nothing unscientific about any of these things unless we assert that science must categorically exclude God. Unless we assert that science must categorically exclude God. But what's so scientific about that statement? That's a faith statement. That's not a scientific statement. That can't be demonstrated in a test too. That's a faith claim. Those who are suppressing the truth this way want to force you to make a choice. They want to force you to make this choice. You can be a fool and believe in God, that He created everything, or you can be reasonable and accept science. That's, is that how it goes? But there's no reason for us to choose here. We don't have to exclude God from science. See, we can have God and we can have science too. In fact, we should have God and we should have science too. 
And many of the greatest scientists who've ever lived have been believers. God and science are not at odds with each other. It, it, quite frankly, you know, it, there's been many times where I've actually worshipped God as I was playing my electric guitar. I'll tell you why I was worshipping God. It's because the vibrations from these strings were causing that body to vibrate. And that little electromagnetic doodad we call pickup that's under the strings is picking this signal up, you know, and it's sending it to an amp. And then it goes through, I won't go into explaining all of that, but it goes through all of that and comes out as a speaker. This is all science. And a lot of our favorite songs were produced by this science. It's a real lovely thing, isn't it? And God is the author of it. He is the author of it. We don't have to make this choice. Now, our time is running out. You know, the apostle, is, the apostle Paul, he's eager and unashamed to preach the gospel. He begins with what we call the bad news, right? He begins with the bad news. And, you know, if you think this is controversial so far, boy, I don't know if you can look ahead. We got, it's going to get a little worse before it gets a little bit better. We've got some real controversial stuff coming up. And I really ask for your prayers as we go along. But he starts, the Apostle Paul starts by saying that we're all without excuse. So let's go back to the guy I started with at the beginning, you know, the guy that's got the big brick house and the three-stall garage and the Corvette and the Lexus SUV and the Beamer in the driveway. And uh, kids are doing great. They're great athletes. And the career is going fantastic. Everything is wonderful. But there's no Jesus. It looks like everything is wonderful. But the wrath of God is currently upon that house presently as we speak. And somebody has to tell him about that. It's not up to us that he believe us. But it is up to us to tell him. If it's not up to us, who is it up to? Who's going to do it? If we don't do it, who will? Furthermore, we've angered God by pushing back against us, by suppressing this truth It angers God, by living as if he's not there, by living and acting as if he doesn't exist, by doing whatever we please, by withholding thanks from him and glory from him. John puts it like this in John 3, 36. He says, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. We read this just a little bit ago. It was the last verse we read in the New Testament at the beginning of our service. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life but the wrath of God remains on him. The wrath of God remains on him. You see, the wrath of God remains on him because the wrath of God was always on him. It hasn't been taken away. It hasn't been taken away. And secondly, notice, whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him we're not free to do whatever we want if we're living any way we want we're not obeying christ if we're not obeying christ presently right now not waiting later presently the wrath of god is upon us if we're not obeying the son that's what the verse teaches isn't it but here's the good news and you know, Jonathan Edwards preached a sermon that's pretty famous. I don't know if any of you have ever heard it, where he preached a sermon that was all bad news. I mean, through the whole thing, kind of like this one has been. It's really been kind of miserable, hasn't it? 
all bad news all the way through it. It was so bad that one of the members of the congregation yelled out and said, you know, Reverend Edwards, give us some good news. You know what he said? Does anybody know the story? He said, we're going to look at the good news next week. We're not going to look at the good news next week. We're going to look at the good news right now. The good news is that Jesus went to the cross. If you have any question about the wrath of God, look to the cross. What is Jesus doing there? He's suffering the agony of the wrath of God that should have been cast upon us. The spiritual, emotional, and psychological torment that Jesus experienced as he suffered the wrath of God was the worst part of his suffering, as if the physical suffering wasn't bad enough. But he underwent this torment to save sinners like us, people who were living any way we wanted, people who really didn't want God intruding in our lives, people who really just wanted to do whatever we wanted to do. And that's what wins our hearts, isn't it? He didn't come to save a bunch of good guys and good gals and good girls and good boys because there isn't a one of us to be found. He came to save a bunch of rascals who were pushing him away. You see, it's the bad news that makes the good news so good. The good news is it's finished and the good news is he's taken this awful wrath away. And the good news is that we can look to him this morning. We can repent of our sins, which we're going to do in a few minutes before we come to the table. We can repent of those sins, the sins we've committed. And we can find forgiveness because of what Jesus has done. Amen. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, thank you for helping us to get through such. We're just beginning in such difficult material. It's not fun for any of us to preach. It's, if it was fun to preach, I think there would be something really wrong with us. But Father, nevertheless, it has to be done. And Father, we embrace it. And Father, we want, we want to learn more about it. And we want to get better at it. And Father, we ask that, Lord, you, you would press these truths upon us, that we would come to know Jesus all the better. That, Father, we recognize already that it sure sweetens the grace that we've received from, from Jesus. And and from you and from your, your gracious hand. So, Father, we ask that, Father, not only would you press these truths upon our hearts afresh this morning, we, we most of us know them all so well, but, Father, you would give us boldness in sharing them, not an obnoxious boldness, but a loving boldness in sharing these truths with those who are dying all around us. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.